This is Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm Dr. Celine Galgich, and I'm a clinical psychologist who works extensively with OCD. And I'm Dr. Victoria Miller, but you can call me Tori. And I'm a clinical psychologist who works with young people, including those with OCD. Through our shared professional experience, we've found that effective treatment of OCD requires commitment, creativity, and the recognition that things can sometimes get a little messy. They sure can. We want to empower clinicians to be able to work with their patients in new ways to treat OCD with confidence. How often have you struggled in sessions when feelings of guilt and shame show up for clients? You know, when you are starting to feel stuck or like therapy is being hamstrung because these feelings just keep showing up for our clients. When guilt and shame show up in treatment of OCD, it can feel really frustrating. It can also feel incredibly sad. In today's episode, you'll hear us talk about the ways to identify when guilt and shame has entered the room and is starting to impact treatment, as well as some ideas on how to address it when it does. Let's get started. Hey, Celine. Hi, Tori. Feels like ages since we've done a skills episode. I know. I know. It's good to be back. Good to be doing it. And we've got a juicy one for you guys today. Yes, I agree. So we thought about continuing on thinking about the things that get us stuck in therapy, particularly in the ERP space, because I reckon this is where therapy gets really interesting because, you know, you've got the framework, you know what to do, what good enough therapy looks like. But of course, therapy is very individualized. It looks different all the time. Clients are bringing different content, different processes, you know, the experience is ever changing. And so we've got to be able to move and flex with our clients, depending on what they're bringing and got to build our capacity to tune into the moments that seem a little stuck or our clients seem to be struggling in some way and to tune into that. And so we were thinking, what a great kind of idea for a skills episode to think about guilt and shame. Because in our experience, I think I speak for both of us, Celine, that guilt and shame in therapy can definitely get things stuck. And it definitely is something that sometimes people need help shifting or understanding. And so um, we wanted to do a little dive into the concepts of guilt and shame, which, Celine, will be very easy for you as a true devotee, number one fan of Brené Brown. <laughs> <laughs> you probably are Australia's number one Brené Brown fan. Oh, I don't know about number one, but I probably would be up there. <laughs> You'd be up there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I used to listen to her. I still do go back and listen to some of her podcast episodes and, and shed a little tear when she stopped recording them, but that's okay. Lots to think about. So a lot of the research that she does talks about the difference between guilt and shame, and she's done wonderful research in picking apart a wide range of emotions, actually. And Atlas of the Heart, if anyone's interested, is one of the more recent books that she's done that really, A, a beautifully designed and put together book and really pretty to look at, but <laughs> also talks about each and every emotion and the difference between. And, and I think it's really important because we can actually get confused between some of those things and think that something feels a certain way when actually it's something else. 
And I think anxiety and excitement is one of those things when people, because it physiologically feels the same and people can mislabel something as anxiety when really actually it might be excitement if people take a minute and actually think about what it is that's going on for them. And guilt and shame is one of those other ones. And the reason why, as Tori mentioned, that we're highlighting guilt and shame is because coming back to the idea of form and function, we can see what OCD looks like, but what's driving it underneath. And OCD can do a really good job of bringing up feelings of guilt and shame in order to hamstring our clients when they're really trying to do exposure tasks. And when guilt and shame shows up, if they're not sure how to regulate that emotion and what to do with those feelings, then OCD can kind of really sink its teeth in and grab hold and all we see is compulsions after that because it gets really tricky to navigate. So what is the difference between guilt and shame? So shame is a focus on self, whereas guilt is a focus on behavior. So shame is I am a bad person and guilt manifests as I did something bad. And an example of this can be if a client is presenting with scrupulosity type OCD from a moralistic nature, then they might experience, say, thoughts of, have I said the right thing in this conversation? They might feel guilty for offending someone. Another example might be if someone's experiencing harm thoughts, sexualized thoughts about molesting a young child that might think, what does that say about me as a person? I'm a horrible person and feel intense feelings of shame because they think they're a bad person for being a pedophile. So that's kind of some of the differences that we can see in the nuances of therapy when it shows up. Yeah. And I think also my thinking would also be, Celine, that people who have experiences of shame from other aspects of life, that can be the perfect foundation for OCD. Yeah, beautifully said. Absolutely. Those narratives of their own sense of self and their own belief about what they're like as a person and what their earlier childhood experiences were like and even adolescent experiences and the feedback they've gotten from other people and how they can carry some of those things can definitely lay the foundations for this sort of stuff. Yeah. I'm sure this is true in the adult space, Celine, which you work in more so than I do, but I certainly see it in a lot of teenagers, the experience of shame as they transition through adolescence and play with the idea of individuation and independence versus dependence with their parents and family and the sense of shame and guilt that they experience for wanting to branch out or testing the limits and especially sort of internalized, you know, yeah, so the desires to be a good person, a good son, a good daughter, and then those really, really complicated feelings about what does this mean? You know, I went to a party and I didn't quite tell my mom what it was all going to be about. Now I feel mm. terrible. And you can really <laughs> see that then these are really normal, understandable, appropriate feelings to be testing those limits and pushing oneself out into the world and finding your limits and boundaries. But then I can see how OCD picks up on that. It gets, it manifests in a lot of compulsions, whether it be literal compulsions, which is just lots of compulsive confessing or reassurance seeking, but also can be indirect, which is just sitting with enormous amounts of discomfort, you know, whilst thinking I'm I'm not a good person, my parents are going to be disappointed in me. And then that then discomfort becomes then the fuel for further compulsions because the teens want to rid themselves of that because they don't like sitting with this, I don't know for sure 
what this all means for me as a person. And it shows very similarly in adults in a sense of, for example, if someone's in a relationship and they're having thoughts, intrusive thoughts about, is this the right relationship for me? Do I love this person? And all that sort of stuff, like feeling intense guilt and shame and confessing to their partner absolutely can show in very similar ways. So how do you reckon it manifests in the room, the guilt and shame? What are you listening for? How do you think about these? If a client is reporting a lot of confessing and reassurance seeking, it's you can use that as a prompt to say when you're engaging in these behaviours, I'm wondering what the emotion is that's sitting underneath. What do you think it might be? And just being curious with the client and without prompting it with guilt and shame. So just letting them talk about what is going on. For some clients, they might report surface emotions first, such as anger, irritability and anxiety. Oftentimes beneath, shame can sit underneath anger. Oh, yeah. I reckon that's a huge, huge indicator of shame. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you look at some of these surface emotions, keep it in mind, you know, and be curious with the client without prompting them by using the words guilt and shame, because sometimes that can get clients to become really defensive if they're not 100% aware of it. So I think it's a conversation that you can be curious and know that if these are the indicators, things like anger or reassurance seeking or confessing, then you can go, okay, these are some flags here for potential feelings of shame. And then just being curious and letting the client explore what is actually going on for them. Yeah, I would agree. That notion of curiosity, I think is so important. And I think that that's where really good therapy, I think, happens when you veer away from just the pure behavioral, because it would be very easy as a clinician to just kind of bring a client and say, how's your homework? Well done. So what are we working on today? What trigger? Great. Let's practice. Good job. What's your homework? Fantastic. Off you go. Don't forget to fill in your worksheets. See you later. To just stay with sort of the behavioral. And look, if you're learning ERP and that's where you start, or in the first few sessions of ERP when you're just working with a client for the first time, absolutely. But as you get to know your client more, I think you've got to step off the path and into the garden a little. Just be curious and have conversations about the client and their world, their relationships, you know, and just help the person think about themselves and what's happening in their lives. And and part of that is really important for treating OCD because you want to know where OCD is manifesting, what's feeding it, what the function of it is. You want to know all about the person's world. I mean, that goes without saying, but I think if you're working with adults, don't forget to talk about or be curious about a person's childhood or their broader context beyond just where OCD manifests and where the compulsions are happening and what you know strategies they have to put into place to reduce those. Because I think this is where you'll discover guilt and shame and how all of these sort of complex emotions and life experiences weave into the maintenance of OCD. Also, I think broadening it out that Treating OCD is about more than just reducing symptoms. We're talking about strengthening people, helping people build their sense of self and identity, their confidence in themselves, their understanding of themselves, their sense of self in the world. It is more than just symptom reduction. If you, I mean, I don't know, people who lean more towards behavioral interventions might disagree and that's okay. But I think I personally believe that a treatment of OCD is about more than just symptom reduction. I mean, that might be where we start to increase someone's symptom functioning so that then we can have the thinking space to wonder about other aspects of self. But I think that 
when we do that, it really, um, I think we maintain gains and we're talking about sort of whole person functioning rather than just symptom reduction and holding that in mind that that's how you can have these rich conversations about guilt and shame and the source of that and the origins and yeah, the narratives that people tell themselves and yeah. Because it helps you get unstuck when you get off the path and head into the garden a little bit and come back to the path. It's one of these things that you kind of do as you go along and it's the art of therapy really where, yes, you have your function of your treatment plan and all that sort of stuff and you're right, it's 100% easy to do when you're teaching your client skills and they're building their confidence and all that sort of stuff. But then when you do those reviews, they're going to come back and they're going to be like, oh, I couldn't because blah, blah, or I couldn't because of this, or I found this really hard, or this kept coming up for me. And it's like, okay, well, in order to get unstuck from that, we need to, yes, keep doing your exposures, but what is hamstringing the client? What is a barrier that's coming up? And if you don't head off the path and head into the garden to explore that a little bit, you're not going to be able to get unstuck and unpack that with your client. So it's incredibly important to keep the things that Tori just mentioned in mind to help you get unstuck, especially with guilt and shame, because it's so deep seated. Like oftentimes you'll, when you go there with a client and ask them questions like, you know, what are your first memories of feeling ashamed? Where does it take you when these feelings of shame come up for you? What do you remember? What comes to mind? And they will sometimes light up like a Christmas tree for clients because sometimes it can still feel like it's happening right then and there. Other times it can feel really intense and they can remember it like it was yesterday. Sometimes they might have felt so strong they might have shut down from that and they might not be able to articulate it but they can certainly feel it and that's okay too. And so it's really important to help you get unstuck, to be able to explore that, to head out into the garden, to be able to ask these questions and be curious and go through some of the things that Tori mentioned in order to help you get back onto the path so that you can keep going because it is whole person care. It's not just ERP is a huge part of treatment, but it's also one part of the treatment. In order to keep doing ERP and for it to be effective, we also need to manage the hurdles as we go along because it's one thing reducing symptoms and getting clients back on track and bringing back functionality and reducing distress, absolutely. But in order for long-term gains to occur, it's always a good idea to also address some of the things that are sitting underneath that might be maintaining OCD. And I was thinking as you were speaking before, Celine, about clients who are saying, you know, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling that. I think what also occurred to me is that sometimes clients won't have insight into their stuckness. And like, I'm thinking about clients who just don't do their homework, you know, who just keep coming back and saying, I was just really busy. I forgot. Oh, maybe today's not a good day for it. And then I think that those things always make me really super curious about what is manifesting for you right now that is reducing your willingness to participate. And often, yeah, there's some ambivalence about engaging. And I think often there's a sense of of shame sitting underneath it, or just that those feelings of guilt that they don't want to experience, that they're trying to avoid by avoiding their exposures. The other, I think, tell that there might be some shame happening is when clients, if you're even at the beginning of therapy, when you're doing a wire box with them, for example, there just might not seem to be quite enough content 
You know, like you're doing an assessment, you know, you've got a few compulsions here, a few obsessions there, but it just seems like there are missing pieces, like relative to this person's levels of distress and perhaps low levels of functioning, there doesn't seem to be enough on the page. And I reckon that that is a bit of a tell that there might be obsessions or themes or compulsions, even compulsions that they're ashamed that they do, that they don't want to share, that they're keeping hidden. And I think we see this quite commonly. And in fact, Celine, in our group program, you know, we talk about this as a common barrier to therapy with the young people that we see, where we talk about how important it is to be really, really honest with your treating clinician about all of the things that you're experiencing, but also acknowledging how hard that can be. And so I think that as a clinician, if you've got someone who just seems like they're not telling you the whole story, being curious about shame, about embarrassment, about guilt, about normalizing those things can actually help to elicit that information. And then if someone's really, really feeling very nervous about being truly honest about some of the content of their obsessions because of the shame that they feel, that can be an exposure task where you get them to slowly tell you in small ways. Like that can actually be part of the work. Like you don't have to wait for them to be okay with telling you. It can be like, okay, today we're just going to write a word and you can fold it. You don't even have to show me. You just write it on the page. And then next time you write it and you show me perhaps. And the next time you say it out loud and then the next time you put it in a full sentence and, you know, and you kind of work up from there and until, yes. yeah. Even things like taking the paper home with them <laughs> and not throwing it in the bin. Oh my gosh. So my clients are like, no, 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 this is not coming home with me. Oh yeah, I don't totally. want this anywhere near me. Yeah. Can you keep this? <laughs> oh yeah, if you could just keep it for next time, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> or even just like burn it. You know, I don't yeah, care. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as long as it's not on my position. <laughs> oh, 100%. Absolutely. Because it's really hard, right? Being vulnerable is really hard and guilt and shame is a huge vulnerability. I think another tell is feelings of depression. Mm, yeah. When they experience intrusive thoughts and just feel really flat and low and internalised. I always think, what is that inner critic telling you? How ashamed is it making you feel? And it's not every person because everyone's triggers will be different. But for those that are, what is that inner critic feeding the client in terms of the content? And is it shame-filled? That's really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's true because we don't always work with clients who are agitated and anxious and distressed and really activated. Often we'll be working with dissociation and flatness and low energy. And I think it's very easy to think of OCD as a really hyperactivated state, but it's not always, is it? That's a really good point you make. So these are all the flags I think we need to keep in mind if we're noticing some of these things so that we can address them in order to help us get unstuck. Let's say you've started having that conversation with the client. When you've had really successful conversations with clients or even some of the things that Brene Brown talks about, once that conversation is having, what do you think are the most important things as a clinician to be doing or, or thinking about when supporting someone with their feelings of guilt and shame? Bringing in self-compassion. That's nice. Yeah. When they're noticing that feelings of guilt and shame are coming up and they're noticing that their internal dialogue is ruthless and brutal in how they're thinking about it, bringing in lots of compassion, self-compassion to help mediate that and to help soften the blow a little bit. And then heading towards their own set of values 
in order to know what to do to take the next steps from there. Mm, That's nice. We're talking about shame and guilt broadly, not just specific to OCD, but I think if you do have a client who is experiencing shame, for example, about their symptoms or guilt about their symptoms, we as clinicians have quite an important role to play. I mean, I remember in our conversation with Penny Moody, just how much she was talking about how difficult that very first appointment was and how long it took her to be honest with her clinician about what she was experiencing and the fear that she was feeling because she felt so ashamed and she was so worried about judgment. And I think that that's where we as clinicians need to be really abreast of all of the themes, obsessive themes, and we need to be really comfortable within ourselves about using terminology such as sex, sexual obsessions, pedophilia, harm, hurt, kill, you know, rape. We need to be able to use all of these terms really comfortably within session. And we need to be aware that if we have any biases or discomfort that our clients will pick it up from us, which will absolutely reinforce their sense of shame. Absolutely. Because people with OCD have this forensic ability (laughs) to really hone in on facial expressions, tone of voice, mannerisms, posture changes, like you would be surprised. Yeah. Sideways glance. You're writing and then you suddenly stop writing. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then you start writing again. <laughs> oh, yes. You know. <laughs> All of the above yeah. and more. Absolutely. It's a really good point that you raise. You have to be comfortable to be able to talk about it. And it doesn't mean that you like it. Hmm. Well, that's the whole point, right? Yeah, it's just being comfortably uncomfortable. Yeah, egodystonic versus egosyntonic. And I think also be sure that you are normalising this for your clients. And I don't just mean, you know, oh, you know, that's really common in OCD. No, 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 this is common amongst the entire human population. We all have thoughts like this. I've talked openly about, you know, one of the predominant themes for me because I'm a mum is pedophilic intrusive thoughts and they're incredibly uncomfortable. But this is what happens in our minds sometimes. And so it's also a moment if as a clinician you felt comfortable, you could do a little bit of self-disclosure, which I think can really help. But at the very least, definitely psychoeducation about how normal thoughts like this are, which will really assist your clients with feelings of shame about their OCD symptoms. We do get stuck in that. And and those things bring up stuff for us too as therapists, right? Like we can get stuck in that too. So absolutely, if you're noticing it, take it to supervision. Yeah, that's right. But I think, you know, the takeaways from today are just awareness of the role that guilt and shame can play for clients in relation to their OCD symptomatology, but just general, you know, psychological well-being and their emotional experiences. So just to be attuned and alert to that and to just hold it in mind. And if you start to detect a few things, be curious, pause, pause the active sort of behavioral intervention, spend some time reflecting, wondering, being curious with your clients. Look for those tells that might indicate that there's some guilt or shame that's slowing treatment down or sort of that's fueling or ambivalence or or avoidance and be confident to have these conversations with your clients because they may or may not be aware of what they're experiencing. Lots of normalization, lots of curiosity, lots of education. And I think it's that process of thinking together that helps things to become unstuck. You know, it may not be able to quickly or easily resolve the shame, but sometimes it's just bringing it to the forefront of one's mind thinking about it, acknowledging it, 
that helps things to just continue to move, which I think is sort of what the point is. It's not about having the skills to sort of take that shame away. It's about just acknowledging its presence, its role, its origins, and just making room for it. Before we wrap up, Celine, last night was week six of our most recent group therapy program. Oh, yes. And I told the young people last night that I was recording an episode with you this morning, and I promised them I'd give them a shout out. Oh, yes. (laughs) That I'd mentioned. Shout out to group, the (laughs) August 2023 group, because we don't know when this episode's going to, I mean, we do, but it'll likely be later this year or early 2024. No, but I promised I'd say hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then I'd give them a mention. Yeah, because oh, it's, awesome. yeah, it's hard when the group wraps up. You know, we spend it such is. an intense... It's always sad. I know, a period of time together. We do so much work and just when you think, you know, you're getting going, you've got to wrap it up. It's an amazing program. It was an amazing bunch of, of young people. Yeah, I'm sure yeah, it was. wish them well. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And, guys, if you're hearing this, hopefully you are, We hope that even though I wasn't running the group with Tori because I'm on mat leave, I hope you guys remembering to stay reluctantly willing and be uncomfortable to make room for what you need to make room for in order to keep developing your sense of self as an adolescent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you so much. Great to be with you again. Yes. We will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Breaking the Rules, a show for mental health professionals designed to help you build confidence in treating obsessive compulsive disorder. This podcast is brought to you by Melbourne Wellbeing Group, a psychology practice based in Melbourne with a special focus on treating OCD. To find out more, head to our website, melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. All one word, that's melbournewellbeinggroup.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative, To make sure you don't miss an episode of Breaking the Rules, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Celine Galgetch. And I'm Tori Miller. And we'll be back next episode with more reasons to convince you to get messy. Have fun and break break the the rules. rules.